Whether you want to travel more or communicate better with international clients, you need to try Babbel. I've used Babbel's courses and you can do the same in order to learn real life conversation skills in a different language, order food, ask for directions, or speak to clients without having to use translation apps. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription. This is only for our listeners at babbel.com slash freelance. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash freelance, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash freelance. Rules and restrictions apply. I'm Brandon Hull, and it's time for Freelance to Founder. And I, I used to always tell people, like, you know, I'm not going to be the guy to take this company to $200 million or $300 million or whatever. And yet I was at the helm when it went to $200 and $300 million a year in revenue. And it was mostly because my attitude was always like, look, just provide great. Let's have a fun environment where people enjoy coming to work. And so I had a very sort of laid back approach to it. And we just kept doing that and the numbers just kept going up and i would love to say i had this grand roadmap of how to get to 400 million dollars in revenue but the rea- but i never did this is the podcast where i talk to entrepreneurs like that last guy chris cobb they're service providers marketing agency owners online course builders bloggers product creators software developers and podcasters And what makes them unique is that they typically started their pursuits on a whim, often as freelance gigs, sometimes with no idea how they'd grow them at first, but they ultimately took on a whole new life and scaled far beyond their expectations, even their own dreams, and therefore much bigger than themselves. In this case, our founder built his business with a dwindling cash reserve and with no knowledge of the business he was getting into, only trust in his own work ethic and the expertise of his partner. Today, we talk to Chris Cobb of Armstrong Transport. His story is different from many we've told. There's no sexy email marketing software here, no seven-figure online course on course building, no niche community he developed and grew, no book, no agency, nope, none of that. This guy moves stuff from one place to another via truck. He's in the freight business, or should I say was in the freight business, since just one month ago, after initially booking him on the show, he finally sold that business after four years of wanting to. Here's why you're going to want to listen to this episode, even if transportation isn't your thing. You're going to learn about the incredible forward-thinking business that Chris exited in order to fund his freight startup. You're going to learn how and why he pivoted from freight brokerage to financial services firm and there will be lessons in there for you. You're gonna learn how he broke through the mental barriers of hitting an intellectual wall with the business and survived what he felt was a terrible decision that cost the company $300,000, as well as important credibility with his partner. And you'll get to know how Chris views risk tolerance and managed his perceived deficiencies as a CEO and manager. We've never had a CEO of a company quite this size. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Freelance to Founder. All right, here's my interview with Mr. Chris Cobb. Chris Cobb, it's been a long time, but I'm so very excited to, to talk to you today. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Yeah, no problem. Looking forward to it. Uh, many years ago, Chris, our listeners don't know this, but uh, I exchanged emails with you. And it was regarding your business, Armstrong Transport, and where you were at. And I shouldn't say many years ago, but uh, just a couple of few years ago about where you're at with your company, Armstrong Transport. And uh, at that point in time, you were, you were starting to toy with the idea of selling that business. That has since happened, and that will make this conversation completely different, unlike any other show that we've done uh, across two and a half years and about 60 interviews with founders in the last, uh, in the last two years. So I, I, I'm really excited to talk about this because it finally happened after a few years. So normally I ask our founders, where's the business at today? How, tell, us, tell us about where the, the state of the business in terms of revenue and all that sort of thing. I can't ask you that question. So I'll ask you this. Where did you net? You are now a former employee of Armstrong Transport and the original founder. Uh, where did it all end up? Where was that landing strip for you? Um, yeah. So uh, we, I sold uh, a decent chunk of the business about a year ago and uh, sold the remaining shares that I had uh, last month, actually. 
And so I'm now 100% out. I got my termination email, my Cobra letter in the mail if I want to go on Cobra. <laughs> I guess I got to find health insurance now. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's summertime. The kids are out of school. Things are kind of chaotic anyway. We're, we're sort of doing the vacation thing. Uh, so I don't know that it's totally hit me yet. I mean, I can see the money in the bank and it's a very large number. Um, and so that's exciting. Um, but yeah, just kind of, uh, I'm just kind of hanging out, you know, kind of taking a breath and, uh, relax, trying to relax. So we, we agreed that we wouldn't disclose the official number, uh, for contractual reasons and so forth. And yet I think it's safe to say, I think you're not going to slap my hand if I say, uh, that it's well into the eight digits that that exit was for you personally, right? That's correct. And you ran Armstrong Transport for how many years? So the company was started in 2006. I had a, a partner, a co-founder. Uh, we started it together. His name was Phil. We ran it together uh, until about 2000, till fall of 2014, in which I purchased him out. Um, and I think that email that you're referring to is probably from about 2015. I had just sort of purchased Phil out and I was sort of looking at him enviously because he went and bought an RV and, and drove his family all over the country. And I was sort of left behind keeping the wheels on the bus. And I looked at him and thought, man, that, that looks really uh, exciting and fun. And um, <laughs> so, so my brain started thinking, okay, you know, how, how fast can I get out? You know, how fast can I, I turn this thing and, and sell it uh, again to a third party? Like you said, those thoughts were sort of bouncing around in 2015 and it took another four years for it to actually uh, come to fruition. So 13 years and, and eight figures is no small achievement. I think what makes it even more interesting to me, having known you through these years, is that it, it's not a business that you were groomed in. It's not a business that you uh, had a prior career that was built upon. It was an industry that you saw as an opportunity. And that's the case, I think, for a lot of our listeners is that opportunities present themselves and some people take advantage of them and go all in. And in other cases, people feel like, I don't know that world or I don't know that industry and maybe I shouldn't go all in. And for you, you did the former. You went, you went all in. Can you talk a little bit about the nature of the business, just kind of a bird's eye view of what the business uh, was that Armstrong Transport was in? and why it was appealing to you, how you got involved in it. Well, it's far less sexy than, than you made it sound. It, uh, essentially, what, <laughs> essentially what happened is I-, I Yeah, it's I could, not some, yeah, it's not some yeah, email marketing job. automation tool of some kind or something, right? Well, well yeah, the, the business in and of itself is not sexy, but the way I fell into it's not either. Uh, you, you know, it wasn't like I had this great epiphany and saw gold in the hills and ran for it. It was more like I couldn't find a job. I couldn't land a job. And so it sort of happened out of necessity is the reality of it. I'll talk about w what the business is, what it, what it is that we did. And then I'll sort of talk about the, be the beginning, how, how it sort of started. So uh, Armstrong Transport was a, uh, what's known as a freight brokerage company. And a freight brokerage company is just the middleman between a manufacturer and a trucking company. Um, so just like a stockbroker or a real estate broker, you match a buyer and a seller. So uh, in, in our case, the seller is a guy who has a truck and he wants to sell his transportation services. And the buyer is somebody who has freight that they need to move. So, uh, you know, I'm sitting at a desk. Imagine I make desks for a living. Uh, I might want to hire Armstrong to haul a truckload of desks from our manufacturing plant in Charlotte all the way to a distribution center in San Diego. And I might pay, you know, $6,000 for that or something like that. And so what they would contact Armstrong, we would spring into action. We would sort of scour our database of, of trucking providers and we would find somebody to do it for $5,500 and we would make a $500 sort of commission. You know, we started out doing uh, one or two shipments a day. Uh, when I left, the company was doing about 20,000 shipments a month. And what blows me away about this is uh, because of my lack of sophistication um, and just my natural curiosity here, I'll ask the question. I, I think that many people just assume from the outside that that industry works through, if not hard and fast contracts, through you know, habit, routine. Like I always ship through this company. I always ship through this company orders over a certain size or shipments of a certain size, I'll use you know UPS or FedEx or whatever. Orders over a certain size, I'll use this uh, Freightliner company you know, or this, uh, this transportation company. And what you're suggesting to me is uh, it's, it's, it's much more sophisticated. There's more, much more to it than that. And there's an opportunity in there for people to be much more choosy 
about who they work with. Well, if you, I mean, if you think about it, any any kind of sort of broker, any sort of middleman is is there to um, help make the the transaction more efficient, right? So you as a buyer, you can buy your own house, you can drive around, you can well now with the internet it's a little bit easier, but you know rewind back twenty years, you could have driven around and looked for for sale signs all day long. And after four weeks, you might have found a house that you might have been interested in, or you could have gone to a real estate broker who already knew of all the houses and could quickly get you the house that, you know, sort of you were looking for, you know, four bedrooms, this many square feet, whatever. Um, so it's very similar. Uh, if, if you manufacture desks, certainly uh, you can call up, you know, FedEx or UPS or, you know, you're driving down the road and you see a large, you know, night transportation or, you know, a very large a Landstar or somebody like that, a very large trucking company, you could certainly call them and, and book it yourself, but you might not get the best rate. Um, and so what Armstrong did and what freight brokers do is we, we sort of look for the best rate. And, you know, if you want to peel back the, the curtain a little bit, the concept that freight brokerage is built on is this idea of, we might be getting off a little bit into the weeds, but essentially there's this idea of back backhauls. Imagine a trucker, a trucker driver from San Diego who's stuck in Charlotte. Like he just wants to get back to San Diego. And so he's willing to take a shipment from Charlotte to San Diego for, you know, maybe just enough to cover his fuel and make a little bit of profit. Um, and that's far cheaper than hiring a trucking company from Charlotte to go to San Diego because then that guy's going to get stuck in San Diego. So, you know, as a broker, we sort of look for people that, um, are wanting to go in the direction of the shipment that needs to be shipped. And, and by sort of matching that need with that, that freight, we get a, a better rate than, than the manufacturer might be able to do on their own. Certainly, if you're a large company, you probably have your own transportation department. And you might have people that do this sort of thing full-time, just sort of in-house. And so for Armstrong, our sweet spot was, you know, companies that were doing five to maybe $50 million in revenue, they're big enough that they're 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 shipping things constantly, but they're maybe not necessarily big enough that they have a sort of a logistics department. You hand it to us and, and we'll handle it from there. We'll make sure it gets delivered. So if the truck does break down, we'll take care of that. Um, you know, if we have to get a different truck and transload it to make sure it gets there on time, like we can handle all that stuff. And and you as the buyer, you don't need to worry about it. Why was this business interesting to you? Because this had nothing to do with your background. Yeah. So let's go back to the beginning. So um 2001, I had an interest in marketing and, and specifically like video production and things like that. And so um, I had started an advertising company and sort of made small scale TV commercials. I ran that for a few years and sort of looked at the numbers one day and, and thought, man, if I, if I just kill myself and work as just my fingers to the bone, I'll never make more than probably $60,000 a year doing this job. And I had a, I had a child, I had another one on the way and I thought I've got to do something different. Uh, this is just not going to cut it. And so I ended up, by the, by the way, so I know what that business was, but our listeners don't know what that business was. That's a business called Charlotte city vision. Can you describe what that business did? Yeah. So, um, it was just the, the typical hotel TV channel, you know, you're in Charlotte, uh, you don't know what to do while you're there. Uh, you turn on the channel in your in your hotel room and it, we would sell advertising space on that. Hey, go to this restaurant, go to this nightclub, whatever. Um, so we shot the commercials and also put them on. And we also ran the channel as well. So we sort of did both halves. And when I say we... The channel was run by a DVD. Wasn't it a DVD? It was, yeah, it was just that a D, was we'd burn a DVD. We'd put it on a loop. This was 2001. So now nowadays you would do a, you know, I don't know, like a Roku box and just stream it or something like that. Sure. But we had sneaker net back then, which means you burn a DVD and you walked it to a hotel and you put it, put the DVD in and pressed repeat and walked out. And I say we, but You sound was, like you're 70. Yeah. <laughs> back in my day. So, so... By the way, I I I loved the idea for that business. I remember that business extremely well, and it was uh, ahead of its time and dealing well with the the technology that you had available at the time. You couldn't stream content back then quite the same way, but you felt like so to to move to Armstrong because we could talk a lot about Charlotte City Vision, but um, you felt like that one was a too, there was it was too manual of a business, too much of a time demand of your business. You could cap out too quickly on what you made from it, right? Yeah, I mean, I was essentially a one-man company and I was selling and I was billing and I was invoicing and I was running the books and I was shooting the commercials and I was burning the DVDs, I was doing it all. And um, it wasn't generating enough sort of revenue to hire somebody else to help. 
like I said, I, I did the math and I thought, you know, if we maxed out and sold all the slots on this channel and we were in, you know, 50 hotels in Charlotte or whatever, uh, you know, I, again, I might make $60,000 a year. And I just thought that's just not going to, you know, in forever for the rest of my life. And that's just not going to work. So what did you do with the business? then? Yeah. So actually there was a, a gentleman who saw the channel and essentially just, I don't say ripped it off, but, but copied and pasted and was selling it at the same concept, but in gyms and workout gyms. So he had a little TV in the gym. So when you're on the treadmill, you could see things to do in Charlotte or whatever. I just turned to him and I said, look, you're already doing this anyway. You're already talking to all the same people. How would you like to add hotel to your uh, repertoire of things that you can sell or whatever? And right, so, your inventory. Yeah. So I sold it to him for, I think it was like $24,000 or something like that, which I don't even know where we came up with that number. It certainly wasn't, you know, we didn't have a, a business broker evaluated or anything like that. I think it was just straight up the value of the contracts that I had at the time, you know, something like that. So we bought it for 24 grand. And uh, that gave me enough money to finish my degree, right? So I was like uh, two years into a degree. I'd sort of stopped going to school uh, so I could work on this. So I had 24 grand in, in the bank. I thought, well, I'm just going to knock out two years of school in like a year. And so I did double time, graduated in December of 2005 and started floating my resume. And, you know, being in Charlotte, I figured I would go work for a bank. I got a degree in marketing. I really wanted to do something, you know, sort of marketing related. And, um, you know, man, I must have, I must have applied to call it 20, 30 different places, you know, and I, I was super aggressive about it. I was calling people and showing up and, and trying to get in their face. And, and I always thought, Hey, you know, my resume looks really good. Like I started this business, I was selling, I was producing, I was customer service. I was, you know, bookkeeping, I was doing all this stuff. Uh, and I thought it would, I thought I wouldn't have a problem landing a job, but in retrospect, I feel like the fact that I ran a business actually was hurting me. I, I think people saw that and kind of thought, oh, this guy's just going to come take our biggest client and go start his own thing, or he's going to be a know-it-all, or he's not going to want to take directions. He's going to want to give directions. That didn't occur to me at the time. I just wondered, why isn't anybody calling me back? Um, so, you know, a couple months goes by, I, you know, my bank account's dwindling. I've got to do something quick. A, a buddy of mine, a, 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 a gentleman by the name of Phil, who I'd known for, you know, a couple years, uh, him and I got to talking one day and he said, you know, I work for a freight brokerage company. And I said, I have, what is that? I have no idea what that is. He started to describe essentially what I just described a couple of minutes ago. And I thought that's crazy. I didn't realize that there was this whole other industry that rides between, you know, transportation, you know? So I started digging into it and it, I was super fascinated by it and intrigued. And he, and Phil said, you know, look, Chris, I've worked at small brokerages. I've looked, worked at large brokerages. I worked at a brokerage where I was the very first person hired, you know, the owner hired me and I've seen the way a bunch of different people have done it. I think I could do it better. I really want to start my own brokerage. And so the time honored American tradition, he stole some clients from his, uh, <laughs> previous employer. And, uh, and, you know, I think the statute has run out now. So it's so long ago. So I feel like, I feel like <laughs> you can say that. that. Yeah. So we, we started with two customers and it was just uh, him and I in the sort of the room above our garage, a bonus room. We, uh, the idea was he would, he would do the sales, he would do the operations and I would do the, the finance, the bookkeeping. Um, and I had really, I had good enough credit that I was able to get us a, a small loan to start. We started the company with about $15,000. You started as freight brokers. That's right. But years later, when we talked about the business, you were really the back end and fueling a nationwide network of freight brokers and less focused on being the freight brokers. So at some point in time, clearly, it, it dawned on you that there was an opportunity to not do the work but to be the infrastructure, the technical infrastructure provider to the people doing that kind of work. Yeah. So that, so the way that sort of played out is for the first year, it was just Phil and I, we had those two customers. We developed, uh, you know, a handful more. Yeah. About eight months in, we thought, okay, you know, we need to hire some employees to sort of grow this thing. And, um, we hired two, two people to start and, uh, you know, we, we gave them a phone, gave them a list of customers, said start at the A's, go to the Z's, um, try to get more freight in the door. And what we found out really early on, well, one thing that Armstrong taught me is I, I have 
various skills, one of which is I'm not a good people manager. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a whip cracker <laughs> at all. So, all right. Okay. Uh, so I've, the day-to-day management you're talking about. Yeah. You're, you're not good at day-to-day follow-up, accountability, uh, yeah, delegating in these ways. And yeah, I'm, let's have our management meeting right. and work on your career path. Blah, 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 right, blah. right, right. And I'm not the guy to come in and say, you know, you need to make 100 calls today and you need to, you know, 100, co- 100 calls get you 20 leads, which gets you one sale or whatever. You know, I, right. I don't even know right. what the numbers are, right? So um, that's not that's not my skill set. And that, that became apparent early, very, very early on. Have you ever noticed that many of the problems people calling with on this show can be solved by hiring someone? Sometimes you need a full-fledged team, other times maybe just a simple assistant, or an expert in something you're not great at. Whatever your reason for hiring, we recommend you take a look at LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. As you may know already, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. And LinkedIn Jobs makes the process of finding the perfect teammate easy and intuitive. Hiring is always easy when you have access to so many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours when using LinkedIn Jobs. I've used it myself, and it was so simple. In fact, I've made multiple hires using LinkedIn Jobs. And did I mention, by the way, it's free to business owners like me and you. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash freelance. That's linkedin.com slash freelance to post your job for free or click the link in our show description. Terms and conditions apply. You know, working from home is mostly great, but there are some days when I realize I haven't left my house or even my chair like all day. Have you been there? Getting outside to exercise or making a trip to the gym are just harder now that my office is just a flight of stairs away. If you're stuck in the same rut as me, then you should try Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W. With the Hydro rower and 20 minutes a day, getting a full body workout is so much easier. Hydro can work up to 86% of your muscles in just 20 minutes for an insane effective home workout. That's because Hydro pairs the effectiveness of rowing with the power of technology to connect you with over 5,000 video trainings, classes, and workouts. And get ready to get out from behind your home desk because after a few months of daily rowing with Hydro, your partner's going to want to take you out for a night on the town to show you off. This spring, join the growing rowing community at Hydro. Head over to Hydro.com and use code FREELANCE to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com and promo code FREELANCE to save $400. Hydro.com, promo code FREELANCE, or just click the link in our show description. All right, Brandon, cutting in from the interview to highlight what he just said. Hit on your podcast player button, the backwards 30 seconds button a couple of times to replay that comment from Chris. It can't be understated enough how important it is to know your limitations. Great to know your strengths. That's important. Embrace them. Put those to use in your business, but know your weaknesses and your limitations as well and hand those off to a partner. Yeah, we sort of floundered with those two guys for about three months and we realized we we paid them payroll for three months and they didn't really, really add a whole lot of value. That's probably half our fault because we don't really know what we're doing. So we let those guys go and we went back to the, the whiteboard and we came up with three ideas to grow the company. Uh, and the very first idea was, why don't we just sort of be the platform for people in our industry? They're known as agents. Why don't we become a, an agent-based uh, program? Let's create a platform for agents to run on, and they can do sort of the the sales calls and the talking to truck drivers, and we'll just handle the back office component of it. What was the other uh, other alternative? What else? What other path could you have taken besides being the platform provider? Okay, so the only other one I remember, I remember we came up with three. Number two, and we by the way, we never got to number two, right? Because number one took off and it worked, and we never looked back. Number two, my our idea was to uh, try to morph Armstrong into more of like a consultant based uh, business where we would like go into manufacturers and say, look. Just show us your books, show us your transportation spend, um, let us evaluate it for you because we know uh, we know sort of the ins and outs and we can tell if you're getting ripped off or, you know, because a lot of times a, a company might might pick one transportation provider and stick with them for 10 years. They get buddy-buddy and rates get inflated or, 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 or fuel prices drop and they don't get adjusted or whatever. So our thought was, 
if we could somehow just be super transparent about it with a manufacturer and say, look, we don't care if you use, use us or not, but like, give us a, some of what we save you. Or if you do use us, we'll, we'll waive our fee or, or whatever, something like that. Um, we never really f- totally fleshed it out because number one took off. Well, it didn't just take off. I mean, it, it plan, plan a was only going to take off if you decided on it and implemented it. Plan B, it sounds like you guys, you sounds like you guys agree, you agreed that plan A was the best course of action before even getting too far down the path of figuring out what plan B would look like. Because plan B to me sounds a lot like what your old company was, which is a lot of manual labor involved and going in, you're always going to be capped on the amount of time that you have. Maybe something in your mind clicked that plan B is back where you were before. Plan A is an opportunity to build, not that you're trying to build a tech company, but to build a solution provider as opposed to a manual service. Yeah, I think, I think uh, and that's probably totally accurate, uh, but maybe a better way to phrase it would be that plan A, well, and, and to be honest about it, plan A was actually to hire a bunch of employees and grow it sort of internally. And then we sort of failed at that, right? We had these two guys and it didn't work out. So we looked at it and we said, let's, let's create a platform. And I really think the reason why we went that route is it looked like the lowest barrier to entry. We already had software that we were using an off the shelf software to, to sort of, uh, create these shipments and, and, um, you know, store the customer, you know, it's like a CRM store, all the customer information and all that stuff. And we already had the accounting platform. We were already doing invoicing. Really all we had to do was find somebody who was an agent and say, Hey, uh, Dave, you're working for XYZ brokerage. How would you like to work for Armstrong and sort of give him a little something more to entice him to come over and that seemed like far easier. It seemed like we could start doing that tomorrow without have the alternative trying to form more of a consulting company. You know, we were going to have to create like a, a, a deck or some sort of PowerPoint, some sort of brochures and, and, and paraphernalia or whatever. I, I still think it, it might've worked, but to your point, definitely would have been a lot more manual and was not something that we could just, you know, instantly sort of hit the ground running. So this is still, yeah, 12 years, 12 years ago, I don't know how well built out the directory or databases or online resources existed to find brokers, but it would have been really easy 12 years ago to just find more customers. You chose to go the find more freight brokers <laughs> uh, route that you could provide the backend support to. How did you go about beginning the process of finding those brokers? You're telling me the offer was really exciting. But how did you even find them? What did you do in those first, you know, three to six months when you decided that that was the plat, the the what you wanted to put your all your chips in on? Um, how'd you find those folks? So, are you familiar with the concept known as spam? <laughs> I mean, you, I'm familiar with the term. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> in full disclosure, that's exactly what we did, right? So, um, there were over the first eight months of business, we got on a lot of what they call freight lists, where you know, again, let's say a desk manufacturer, he needs a shipment from Charlotte to, you know, San Diego, and he would just send out an email and wouldn't BCC anybody, right? So it'd be carbon copied, you know, 300 other companies uh, or agents or whatever, maybe not 300, that's a lot, you know, but let's say 50. Uh, but, you know, we get 10 of those. So we now we have 500 email addresses and we just compiled a list of about a thousand email addresses and said, hey, come to Armstrong at 70% commission. And um, we got like two or three bites off of it. Um, one, the very first agent we ever brought on board is still at the company 13 years later. That's kind of how it started. And then we started, you know, as time went on, we started doing, um, some web advertising for websites that were, you know, sort of catered to our industry that, that, um, were visited right, by. where people would find you. That's right. Yeah. Um, but no, the, uh, day one, it was straight up spamming. Well, so I don't want to endorse that approach in 2019. However, the audience that you were going after, the the target customer that you had in mind, that freight broker, that's a you could argue that's kind of a hustler type of person. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that that's a person who's aggressive, who's sales oriented, who's always thinking about ways that they can go out and be more aggressive in getting customers. I have a feeling that that type of person was probably a little bit less put off by being pinged by a new company with an, uh, a relevant offer to them than maybe what other people might think of when they think of spam or, you know, unsolicited offers or emails. No, absolutely. These guys, um, these guys are on the phone all day trying to get an extra 50 bucks out of the customer or trying to save an extra 50 bucks with the truck driver or whatever. Um, for somebody to come along and say, look, you're going to make 
Um, which actually interesting enough, it's not even 10% more. It's, it's 10% of 60%, which is, I don't know, it's like 16% more or something like that. So it's not an insignificant amount of money, uh, of jump, right. For, for doing the exact same thing you're doing anyway, as our name got out there more and more, um, you know, truck drivers started to know who we were. We started having a little bit better purchasing power, you know, like a, a driver would rather haul a load for Armstrong than new, no name company on the block, you know, type of thing. And, uh, yeah, so it, it slowly grew. I mean, it, it, it really, you know, it's sort of a cliche, but just that, uh, that sort of image of just the snowball and just the momentum and growing. It's like every new agent we brought on board brought on a new set of customers. Let's say an agent might have 20 customers or something like that, but he would also bring 30 or 40, 50 trucking companies that he worked with on a regular basis to Armstrong. We started to develop relationships with them, which led to more agents, which led to more customers, which led to more trucking companies. So the service that um, what I don't want to lose sight of is what the what Armstrong Transport became as a company. You went from being a freight broker yourselves to being the infrastructure provider, which for all intents and purposes means to me that you're not just a service provider, you're a technology company. Um, that you're a company that's providing not just a back-end service, but you're providing a platform for these freight brokers to run their business for them while they're out face-to-face -face with customers. Did you see yourselves that way as a technology company? So uh, we didn't. So, okay, so for the first, okay, so 2006, we started. 2007, we brought on our first agent. For about the next three, maybe two to three years, we were still working with our own customers. We still had our, our initial kind of customers we were working with. So we were supporting agents, but we were also working directly with customers. And then one day, call it 2009, uh, we took a look at it and we thought, we're making more money uh, supporting the agents than we are off of our own customers. Like, why don't we just essentially ditch our customers and just focus on growing the agent side of things? Certainly software is a huge component of the business. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know that I would say we're necessarily a software company. I, I actually sort of described us more as like a financial services company that really ultimately what Armstrong did, the, the quote unquote, the back office support that we provided was really just floating the money. Armstrong's financials were such that, you know, let, let's use that first example of a shipment I gave. So a, a truckload of desks from Charlotte to San Diego, customers paying $6,000. We're paying the trucking company $5,500. We're making 500 bucks. Well, off of that $500 profit, we're gonna give the agent $350. So we're going to make $150 before our expenses, right? Before rent and payroll and employees and health insurance and all that stuff. So, you know, I would talk to people and say, oh, Armstrong's doing $100 million a year. And everyone would be like, oh my gosh, that's, that's amazing. And I'm like, yeah, but man, our, our, our margins are razor, razor, razor thin. Really floating money became the name of the game. And so really, um, that's what Armstrong in my mind became is we started to really, um, you know, every year we were going back to the bank for a bigger and bigger and bigger line of credit. Um, I think we started with a $25,000 line of credit. Then we went to a hundred thousand then 500,000 and then, um, you know, a million dollars. And so when, I, uh, when I left Armstrong has a, currently had a $30 million line of credit when I left, um, and it was just that's sort of what it took to uh, to cover that that spread. So let's talk a little bit about. Can we talk a little bit about growth for a minute here? So that first that first year after you made the strategic decision to pivot as far as what your core value proposition was, what. Did you see immediate adoption of that from a growth standpoint and an acceptance from the marketplace of that, you know, freight broker saying, yes, there needs to be a, a new provider that disrupts this service? Um, or did it take a little bit of time to get your feet set? Um, so, yeah, so it definitely took some time, right? Um, and I think, again, it was just because we were so new. Even once we'd been around for two years, people would defer to companies that had been around for 10 years, right? So like there were always people we had on the hook that we were trying to recruit and we would say, look, we're 70% commissioned. You're going to make more money with us. And they would say, yeah, I know that, but this other company's 65%. That's not that big of a deal. You know, it's your extra 5%, you know, it's, let, 
let's imagine a scenario where they're trying to decide between two potential candidates, right? Armstrong at 70 and another, somebody else at 65. And they're saying, well, you know, 5%, you know, they've been around for 20 years and you guys have been around for three. And how do I know you're going to be here in five? And it's just not worth the risk. And so that was always a constant battle. And I feel like that was a battle up until we had been around for like 10 years. Once we'd been there for 10, around for 10 years, like people kind of stopped bringing that up. What was the what was the um, emotional toll of this like for you? Were you, was this a struggle for you personally to feel like you weren't you hadn't made a bad decision strategically in that first year, or did you feel committed like no 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 the the alternatives would have been painful. This is the way we had to go. It's just going to take a little bit of time. So, um, you know, early on, so two thousand eight, two thousand nine we were always, we were always making money. Even when it was just me me and Phil day one, with just our handful of customers, we were always profitable. And so I, I never experienced the stress of, you know, are we going to be around in three months or six months? I mean, it's, it's always sort of in the back of your head, but um, I had no reason to think we wouldn't be now we weren't making tons of money. You know, we were paying ourselves, I don't know, $50,000 a year, $60,000 a year, something like that early on. This it's interesting. The first, five years, I don't know, it's hard to say looking back, it seems like the first first year was hard work, but then years like two to five weren't as hard, it doesn't seem, it was sort of like the wheels were going, we were going, but then years five to 13 got really hard, <laughs> and a lot of that had to do with just, I don't know, I don't know if I'd call it exponential, but it, the company really started to take off, and suddenly you have like personnel issues and people and the, you know, the, the volume just became more and more and more. And think, you know, when, when you have cracks, you know, when you're doing a hundred million dollars a year and you have some cracks that you lose some money, you know, when you become $500 million a year, it's just that much, the cracks are that much bigger. You're losing that much more money and, and trying to plug all those holes just became exhausting. So, and going back to what you said, your skill set is and isn't for that matter, as you did start to grow and and even beyond that first year, say let's say the first first four to five years, you're profitable, you're growing, you're you're gonna need to start to add staff to support these freight brokers. Did that create its own challenges for you in terms of hiring that staff and finding the right people? And oh boy, this is gonna open up the that uh, that piece where I've gotta I've gotta be a mentor to people, I've gotta think like a a business owner instead of an entrepreneur. Was that a difficult a difficult evolution? For you? Yeah. So one of the things, yeah, yes, it was. And, and it's probably the reason why ultimately I decided to leave when I did. So one of the, I jotted some notes down before we started. And I think one of the mistakes I made, I don't know if we're there yet to the mistakes part, but it sort of ties in. One of the things I, I failed to do is we just boot, I just bootstrapped it for way too long. Um, and, and it was just a creature of habit, right? So like, you know, I'm trying to think of an example. I'm not going to hire somebody to wreck the, the checking account because I can reconcile the checking account. You know, I'll just do it and save the money and we'll keep it in the bank and whatever. And, you know, I'm not going to hire somebody to uh, run envelopes through the stamp machine. I'll do it at, right before I leave every day. Or you know, I'm using kind of weird examples, but essentially that was happening. We didn't have... A, a controller. I was the controller for all intents and purposes. We didn't have a legal department. We were, you know, I was sort of. To me, these these are perfect examples because I think people make these on these decisions. Uh, aspiring entrepreneurs or people who have just started something um, and don't necessarily consider themselves an entrepreneur. They're just starting something. Um, I think they make those decisions all the time. That it's it's easier and faster for me to just do it. As opposed to training somebody totally. in the, the way I want it to be done, let alone having to follow up with them to make sure they did it. I, I think that's very common that that people struggle with that. So I think it's it's pretty uh, noteworthy that you're mentioning that, that you struggle with, with it as well. Well, so the way I describe it to people, it's um, so I was, you know, grew up as a, I was a Boy Scout, right? So you learn how to make a fire. And, you know, when you're first starting that fire, it's like you got to you know, it's got to have the oxygen, you, you know, your baby in that thing, right? You're holding on to that flame and same, you know, and that's how we treated the cash. It's like, we were holding on to the cash, keep it in the bank as long as possible. You know, don't hire anybody. We don't absolutely need, everyone needs to be working at 120% before we hire the next person. And we were just, you know, just nursing that flame. 
but eventually it becomes a roaring bonfire, but we were still act, we were still in that nursing stance. I should have hired a controller four years before I ever got around to hiring a controller, you know? And yeah, maybe there wouldn't have been a full 40 hour work week for him, but maybe he would have done 27 hours doing controlling work and we have filled fluff for the other 13 hours and that would have been fine. Internally in the back office, the work is very, I don't say mundane, but it, you know, we're making widgets, right? We're printing invoices, we're cashing checks, we're, we're invoicing customers, we're getting bills from trucking companies, and that's all we did day in, day out. And so it essentially was making widgets. And it wasn't, um, it's not super challenging work. It's not particularly interesting, I don't think. So I always tried to create sort of a fun environment at Armstrong. And I don't know if that was good or bad. <laughs> um, we So as a result, our cult, culture was a little bit... Uh, it was laid back. It was kind of a work hard, play hard. Um, we didn't have, and we were growing so fast. We, we had very few, if no, you know, SOPs or nothing was sort of written down. And and we would always have these meetings say, we need to, we need to write this stuff down. But then just the thought of trying to commit something to paper, just my eyes would glaze over and, uh, you know, I'm like, I'm trying to keep the wheels on the bus. I don't have time to to stop and write down, you know, when we should drop the mail off at the post office or whatever, you know. You didn't have time for for jotting down the standard operating procedures. This flies completely in the face of all the EMIF guidance out there, you know, where, you know, you're supposed to be working on the business as much as in the business. You're violating all those rules, Chris. Well, I think, but, you know, I read the E-Myth about halfway through and I thought, yeah, this is great. Like, I'll be the CEO. This guy will be the COO. This guy will be the CFO. Um, and I thought, yeah, you know, we, we should be doing this. It's just, it's just hard. It's just way hard to do when you come in and your phone's ringing and you're super busy and this agent's ticked off because this customer wasn't invoiced correctly and they get to the bottom of that and figure that out. It's like, I just felt like I never had the time for it. Was it the time and the interest, not the, the interest in working on the minutia of decisions that needed to be made to run the company? Well, I definitely think talking about skill set. So I always felt actually we should we should pause here for a second. So in 2014, I started to get a little disillusioned with Armstrong. I, I attempted to try something different. I attempted to hire some employees in St. Louis, not a, not agents. I was getting away from our model. I thought, and and here's the reason why. So in 2014, we were contacted by somebody that was interested in purchasing us. And they said, hey, we're a competitor and tell us about your business. We were telling them and they said, well, everyone's an agent. And we're like, yeah, yeah, they're all agents. No, no employees. Isn't that great? Like, it's just all straight commission. And they their response was, well, what am I buying? You know, if you don't have if you don't have employees that you own, like what's to stop all these people from just jumping ship and going somewhere else? And you try to spin that the best way you can and say, well, you know, they like Armstrong. We pay great commission. Why would they leave? It would, it would really be hard for a competitor to offer 75 or 80% commission. That's almost virtually impossible. And and so it, it would take a new company that grows up on 80% commission. It would be really hard for a company that pays 60% commission to suddenly start paying 80% commission. That's cutting their, their cut in half, right? I started to think about that and I thought, man, are we have we painted ourselves into a corner where we'll, we'll never be able to exit because we don't have employees and, and no buyers ever going to want to buy us because these people aren't really locked in long-term or anything like that. So I started to sh sort of worry about that. And I thought, let's open an employee office. And about this time, somebody contacted me. They lived in St. Louis. They had worked for a competitor. They were, they had a big book of business or so they said, and wanted to start an office and I thought, okay, let's back these guys. Let's just give them the money, give them the runway, let them grow an office, do what they know, and they'll be employees, and now we'll have something. And if this works, great. We'll go open Atlanta or Jacksonville or whatever. Um, it was a total disaster. These guys came from a large corporation, and they just didn't know anything about starting a business. And so four people went out and rented a 3000 square foot office. Cause someday they were going to have 40 employees and they went and leased a $12,000 printer or something crazy like that, because that's what they had at their last big corporate job. And, you know, talking about fanning that fire, they were just throwing sticks on it, you know, expecting it to just spontaneously combust and it, they smothered it. Right. And so that was a painful year. 
2013 to about mid 14. And we ran the numbers and we probably lost like $300,000 on that St. Louis office. What happened was uh, it created a, a decent sized rift between me and my business partner. Um, he was far more conservative than me as far as risk and credit and extending credit and, and, and risk, you know, whatever I looked at it and thought, I still think this is a viable thing. We just failed in St. Louis. Look at, it was super expensive and it was a lot of money, but now we know exactly how to not do it. So the next time when we open Atlanta, we'll do it way better. And he just did not like that idea at all. He was like, I have no desire to ever open it. Long story short, I blew a lot of political capital on St. Louis office and I just didn't have it anymore. I couldn't go to him and say, I think we should do this because up until that point, every at bat had sort of been a, a home run and we compl I completely struck out and I was driving the bus on it and, and he had his reservations about it before we ever even opened it. Now, I know you well, but but listeners don't know you and I, I kind of feel like the way you assess decisions is very detached emotionally. You don't worry too much about a bad decision because you feel like I'll make enough of them that I'll, I'll, I'll guess right more often than I'll guess wrong. And yeah, I'll learn from it and move on. But did this, given how far along you were in the uh, life cycle of Armstrong, was this failure, for lack of a better term, uh, a painful one? Or did it matter to you? Or were you, were you sort of disconnected from that one as well? I mean, uh, it was painful in the sense that three, four hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money. And I thought, hell, we should have just taken the four hundred grand, split it down the middle, and each put half in our pocket. You know, we would, we would be if only you knew. Same, yeah, we'd be in the exact same spot we are now, and I would have a, a much nicer house or whatever. But it was also painful because I just felt kind of dumb to my partner because, like I said, he he didn't like the idea. He had his reservations. I was selling it. I was like, trust me, trust me. I feel good about this. And like, I was just completely wrong. And I felt, and, and being wrong, just, it's just stung, right? It like, it just, I just felt stupid. And so he was saying, so my business partner was like, well, we're, we're never doing that again. We're never going to make that mistake again was sort of what he was saying. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to be painted in this corner where we're just handcuffed to Armstrong forever because we don't own anything. Like I'm, I'm more of the, let's try it again, just do it differently. And so I, again, sort of long story short, I went to him and said, you know what, Phil, uh, I'm not super happy. Um, and it's not, it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me. I'm ready for a change. Um, so this was 2014 and I said, look, I can buy you out. You can buy me out. It doesn't really matter to me either way. Like I just need to do something different. I'm just, my, my heart's not in it. I, you know, St. Louis took the wind out of my sail. Um, I would like to try it again, but you're not interested in anything like that. So we had a buy sell agreement between the two of us and I threw out a number and I said, look, here's the number I think I could pay you, uh, you know, from sort of the proceeds of the company over the next two years. And, uh, or you can give me that number, whatever. It doesn't matter. He went home and thought about it, came back the next day and said, okay. And in two weeks we drew up an agreement and he was out. And so he, he, you know, we had that conversation probably August 15th of 14 and he was out September 1st. But did that, did th that's interesting because if that took the wind out of your sails, he's the one that leaves. You're now the one that's got to pick up the pieces and make the next phase happen. Well, so there was this other thing that was going on behind the scenes too, that I think is important. So when Phil and I started, we were 50, 50 owners, uh, in, in the company. And his responsibilities was customers, trucking companies, operations. And my responsibilities was financial, invoicing, billing, bookkeeping, whatever. Armstrong started doing less and less customer, trucker interaction and started doing more and more financial invoicing, billing, bookkeeping. That sort of seesaw had sort of, or that scale had sort of tipped to the point where you know, internally, whether this is right or wrong, I felt like I was doing 80, 90% of the work for only 50% of the return. And it wasn't Phil's fault. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't because he didn't want to work. It was just the things that Armstrong started doing were no longer the skill set that he had. It's just the nature of how the, the business evolved. It evolved, right. And he, and he sort of, I don't want to say he got left behind, but it just, it just wasn't what he, 
did or knew and and so then throw st louis in the mix and whatever and so i was like look again you can leave or i can leave it doesn't matter so when he took the offer i actually got re-energized because i thought okay now i'll be doing 100 percent of the work so to speak i mean i'll hire somebody to replace him but i'll be getting 100 percent of the return and so now i was sort of like yeah like let's grow it the other thought i had was if i paid him x to leave well, once he's paid off, even if I just sell it for the exact same amount it was that day, I'm going to get 2x, right? And like, that's a decent number and, and I can live off that. So I sort of had this 2x in mind that I was driving for. And that's probably about the time I sent you that email. And I said, uh, hey, look, you know, Phil's out, like I'm running the show. I'm starting to think, okay, where's the where's the exit sign? You know, where's the pot of gold at the end of this rainbow? because I, I, I saw what Phil was doing. It looked like he was having a lot of fun. He essentially retired. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to I'm gonna pay him off, and then I'm going to pull the parachute. Yeah, and then I'm going to jump out of the plane. Did the nature of how the business was then run change as a result of that? Like you're energized on one hand, but you're energized more to accelerate towards an exit, it looks like to me. So did the nature of how you grew, did that change? Yeah. So one of the things that, um, so it's the, the day Phil walked out the door, uh, a gentleman by the name of Brian, his resume came across my desk. He was from Jacksonville, Florida. He had been involved in a freight brokerage that due to mismanagement had collapsed. The owner was kind of a wild card. And anyway, so he was looking for a gig and, and I talked to Brian and said, look, my partner just left. Um, I need a COO would you mind relocating to Charlotte and, and help me pay him off and, and I'll cut you in on some equity in, in the company if we, if we grow it. And then at someday we'll sell it. And so Brian came up Armstrong and, and this was partly influenced by Phil was very steady growth. Like, okay, a customer needs a $5,000 credit limit. Let's give them exactly $5,000. You know, let's, let's get two payments under our belt before we give them $10,000 or whatever. And we would do as much hand-wringing over $5,000 credit limit as we would a $50,000 credit limit. And there no, was no rhyme or reason to it. Experian business reports didn't give us, you know, guy could have 98% good score and never pay his bill. And like, there was just, it was virtually impossible. It was, it, we might as well have been flipping coins. Um, and so Brian came in and Brian was far more aggressive with credit limits. And we're just going to you know, just pour gas on this fire is essentially what happened. Side note, at the same time as when we started purchasing credit insurance, uh, which I think was a, a, one of the best decisions we made. Um, and I always joked with the credit insurance guys. I said, if I didn't work for Armstrong, maybe I'd go sell credit insurance because it really was a great thing. We, you know, and we didn't have to stress about, should we give them $50,000 or not? We would just give them the $50,000 and if they didn't pay, then these guys would pay out. And it's not, and it's pretty inexpensive con compared to sort of what we were making. Um, but that allowed us again to, to let more slack out to grow. What did competitors think of you guys all of this time? Did you have much interaction with them where you got feedback that uh, they didn't think you'd last early on and then uh, ultimately were surprised by what you accomplished? Did they respond to your uh, aggressive offer to their former agents, what was your what was your relationship with them, with them like through the years? Yeah, what was interesting is that um, you know I talked about you know early on we spammed you know we, we and inevitably some of those emails ended up at the in the e inbox of a business owner right and those guys would just rattle back a you know f you this that and the other how dare you try to poach my people or whatever. My attitude was always, these people are free agents. Like if somebody doesn't want to be here, like they should take their customers and go somewhere else. Like I was always baffled that these guys didn't have the same attitude. Like they felt like the only thing holding their house of cards together was that like they, their, their agent didn't know there was a better offer out there, which I always found interesting. Um, because then, then you're just, it's just a matter of time, right? Before somebody leaves, you know, we, we absolutely had people um, reach out to us and say like, you know, there's no way you can pay 70%, but we didn't have a ton of interaction. Um, but, but we did see emails like that, uh, or I would get phone calls like that. So let's, let's, let's take the airplane back up to about the 30,000 foot view here. And, and especially now that you've got the wisdom of being able to look in the, uh, rear view mirror at, uh, at Armstrong, as you look back over the, uh, 12 to 13 years of Armstrong transport, how did you 
evolve as a as a leader? How did you how did your priorities change change? How did your uh, your focus change? And how did your vision of what your company can be? How did that change over the years? Man, I don't know if I have a good answer for that. I uh, I used to always joke with people. Ah, you know, I'm more of like a startup guy. I'm more of a guy that gets in- jazzed about like, what are our logo colors going to be? And, you know, what's our letterhead going to look like? And what's our website? And, you know, what's this product? And, you know, I'm more of a creating something out of thin air is what always gets me interested. Taking something that's created from $100 million to $300 million, that just doesn't get me jazzed. It's You're just doing more of the same. You know, you're going from making this many widgets to just making twice as many widgets. That's not particularly interesting to me. And I, I used to always tell people like, you know, I'm not going to be the guy to take this company to $200 million or $300 million or whatever. And yet I was at the helm when it went to 200 and $300 million a year in revenue. And it was mostly because my attitude was always like, look, just provide great. Let's have a fun environment where people enjoy coming to work. And so I had a very sort of laid back approach to it. And we just kept doing that. And the numbers just kept going up. And I would love to say I had this grand roadmap of how to get to $400 million in revenue, but the rea- but I never did. I mean, I'd love, I'd love to say, I would love to say that like we went on this retreat and we mapped out this five-year plan and like we hit every goal and every uh, mark that we wanted to. And part of the reason why I hesitate to say anything is because I always felt that it was really, I was always skeptical. So when Brian came up, he was like, well, we know we need, we should have some goals. Like how much revenue do we want to do next year? And I was always laughed at that question because I thought, uh, I don't know how many people are we going to recruit? Like it, I never felt that we were ever really in control of being able to drive those numbers up, which sounds totally lame probably. But the point being is like we could get a call today from an agent that is doing $50 million a year in revenue and he's looking for a new home. Suddenly our top number is $50 million higher, you know? Um, but I can't control when that guy's going to call. Um, I can make outbound calls, but I can't get that guy to come on board. What we're doing works. Let's just keep doing what we're doing and let the chips fall where they may. Well, also still looking in that rearview mirror with with Armstrong now being in the in the rear view and very different for your partner at the time, Brian, who's still there. Um, you're you're done. You you don't have a, a package where you're in the business watching it continue to grow to to optimize your uh, your buyout. Since you're done now, um, for the most part. What's next? What what do, what has that these le- what have these lessons taught you about building and growing and then exiting a business and what uh, what makes sense for you to do next? So, a couple of thoughts, uh, two three thoughts. One, Armstrong was a great business. You know, like we said, it was very easy to scale and grow quickly. Um, you know, we just sort of cranked out more and more widgets, kept bringing on agents, and the top number kept growing and growing. In retrospect, it was a really hard business because we had agents, we had customers, and we had trucking companies. And the motivations of those three groups are, well, and then you also had employees as well. And they were always at odds with each other, right? So if a trucking company wanted more money, that took commission out of the agent's pocket. If the customer wanted to pay less, that took money out of the agent's pocket. The agent wanted to charge the customer more, you know, so they were all intertwined and it was nearly impossible to make all three of those people happy at the same time. And then you throw employees in the mix and we were just always getting pulled in like four different directions at once. And it was really, that was, that's the, that was the hardest part about, about the company. So if I ever start something again, it's not going to be where I've got four different groups of people who all have different goals and, and aren't, you know, whose motivations are are not aligned. So you think if you have a software company, you've got customers, you've got employees, and that's about it, right? You just sort of have these two groups of people. Um, I, I tell you, I'm not, I'm not super interested in starting a company right now. Um, it, it was, it was hard. It was a lot of work. Um, I wouldn't say that I would never say I'd neglected my family, but there were a lot of times where I was like, sorry guys, like summer of 2017 has to be put on pause because my controller just quit and we moved into a new building and we're rolling out our new version of our software and like dad's just going to be gone this summer. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to 
having some time off and spending it with them. I would really like to do something philanthropic, something in the community. Um, I, before we started the, the, the podcast, I told you I've been writing music. I play guitar. Um, so I've, you know, I don't, none of it's probably any good, but I just feel like I need sort of this, I, I need a more artistic creative outlet as opposed to just numbers and, and, and dollars and stuff. This is exciting. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a, what a, what a tale. Thanks, man. No, like it, it's probably been really fascinating for you because we've known, you know, you've known me since the beginning and now you, you, you see how it played out and whatnot. All right. That was the story of Chris Cobb, founder of Armstrong Transport. All right. Coming up next week, we have John Soash, founder of G Educator. He was a former teacher and now an educator, a consultant, a trainer, an online course builder, a book publisher, helping teachers and school districts make the most out of Chromebooks. What a niche industry to be in. What a cool business. And John is doing extremely well with it. I really want you to hear this episode. It's going to be a fun one. All right. Thank you to my co-producer, Preston Lee, founder of Millo and admin of the Millo Mastermind community on Facebook, as well as our incredible assistant, Bilal Ibrar, for helping to put this episode together and also to the Podglomerate Network. Thanks for listening, everyone. Catch me at Brandon Hull on Twitter, if you like, and feel free to drop your rating or review on whichever podcast platform you prefer. We'll catch you next time on Freelance to Founder. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.